We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 20. A little note before we begin. This will be the last new installment of the podcast for roughly a month, as I'm giving myself a little time to recharge ahead of our upcoming 200th episode, which will be released over the summer. Rest assured that during this period where you won't be getting new episodes, I will be sharing film recommendations and other surprises over on our Patreon and also continue working on shows behind the scenes. But I'm giving myself a little break to heal from an injury, a little tendonitis that cropped up from too much writing. And I'm also creating a cushion of episodes in case I travel, anything unforeseen arrives, or life gets a little bit busier. So I want to thank you so much for your listenership and support in this little period, and wishing you and yours a very happy, safe, and relaxing Memorial Day weekend, and giving thanks and honoring those who have fallen while serving our country, which is what Memorial Day is all about. And now without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. Returning to the podcast today for the first time since I chatted with him and other wonderful writer-editors of the online film journal Brightwall Dark Room about their favorite comfort movies a few seasons back, we have Ethan Warren a member of the Boston Society of Film Critics who holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, plus the writer-director of the film, West of Her. Ethan is here to give us the inside scoop on his rich, fascinating cinema studies book for Columbia University Press, part of the publisher's Director's Cuts series, which focuses on the work of the most significant contemporary international filmmakers. Ethan Warren's outstanding work entitled The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, is now available, and I highly recommend you check it out, Ethan Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing and how's spring treating you so far? Uh, I'm doing great. Spring is treating us really well. It's just starting to warm up out here in Boston and we're all happy. Yeah. Good. And congratulations on the book with so much simultaneous research happening as I prep for multiple episodes. I'm not quite finished, as I said off air, but everything I've read, I've loved. And I can't even imagine how much work it must have been to undertake. So when did you get the idea and when were the wheels set in motion for this first big study of yours on Paul Thomas Anderson? And what was that whole process like? Uh, well, I was I got in touch with the uh, acquiring editor at Columbia University Press, Ryan Grundyke, uh, when I was actually trying to pitch uh, a different project to them. Uh, they had a series called Cultographies. It was all about cult films. I wanted to write something for that, but that line had been shut down. Oh, okay. And so 
so Ryan invited me to um, pitch something for one of their other lines, though, if I ever had an idea for they have uh, its director's cuts. And then I think shortcuts is their other series, um, which are sort of film studies manuals gotcha. uh, and directors and director's cuts is their series of auteur studies. And I had some ideas knocking around in my head for a bunch of years um, for something to do on Paul Thomas Anderson. And so that was what I ended up pitching to them. I said, is there any, you know, I, I looked through the list of people that they have done uh, books on and he wasn't on there. I was kind of surprised because there have been a, a number of great books on him. He's a sort of rich subject, um, but they hadn't gotten around to him yet. And um, when I suggested it, they were all very interested. It felt like <laughs> we all agreed. It felt like Phantom Thread was a really great sort of point to stop and and take stock of the guy's career. And then Licorice Pizza came out while I was finishing the book and I had to stop oh, wow. and uh, absorb licorice pizza into this entire book. So, yeah. but fortunately, licorice pizza makes an even better uh, wrapping up point than Phantom it really does. For my yeah, it kind of goes back in his own history and it plays with some of the themes that you're addressing in your book. So, when was this a few years ago? This whole thing began. Yeah, this all began uh, right at the beginning of uh, the COVID lockdown 2020. Okay. Wow. So talk to me about your connection to the films of Paul Thomas Anderson and why you think his work stands out. I know Punch Drunk Love you write about was kind of like your blew your hair back. So talk all about that. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. The first of his movies that I saw was Punch Drunk Love. I was about 16 years old and I was really curious about this concept of the Adam Sandler movie for grownups. And I was not ready for what I got which was this incredibly assaultive, um, strange, eerie. Uh, if it's a comedy, it's a very, very dry comedy. Um, mm -hmm. And it just made me feel so alienated that it um, made me really angry. I stormed out of that movie theater, just convinced that I had seen the worst movie I had ever watched in my life. Mm -hmm. And any, anytime people would try to be like, you know, maybe there's something to it. I'd be like, no, there's nothing to it. You know, there's, there's nothing to get. Mm -hmm. um, and then a couple of years later, there will be blood came out and I tagged along with a couple of friends who wanted to go see it. And I was sort of, I had my arms crossed because I was like, well, I've seen one of this guy's other movies and it was the worst movie I've ever seen. So what's this going to be? Um, and then I was transfixed by there will be blood, you know, mm -hmm. immediately. And I was transfixed by the master. And then I went back and watched Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Um, actually, I think I have that out of order. I think I did Boogie Nights and Magnolia and the spell between There Will Be Blood and the Master, which was a long, something like six years, I think. Um, and I was transfixed by all of these movies, but never felt the urge to go back to uh, revisit Punch Drunk Love because mm -hmm. I just held that in my mind as this movie that I had such contempt for and that felt like it had such contempt for me. Um, and finally, I went back to it, and now I find it the most fascinating of his movies because I can still see what in there was so upsetting to me at the time, but I can now understand much more about the way it all works and the mechanisms behind it. Yeah, his films are very divisive, and they do tap into, like you said, it made you very, very angry. I actually dated a fellow critic who, uh, when he saw it at Toronto, Punch Drunk Love, after the scene, I guess, uh, where he beats up the bathroom, he just left. He's like, I'm done with this movie. It is too much. It's too uncomfortable. It's too weird. Uh, you know, this guy's an asshole. And he met Paul Thomas Anderson. He's like, I'm out. Yep. And so he just walked out. And uh, I loved the film. Um, I loved it the first time I saw it. My first, I'm a few years older than you, um, but the first one that I ever saw of his, I believe, was Magnolia. And I've had some of my best film-going experiences seeing the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. And Magnolia was one of them because by that point, I'd had three back surgeries of five. And so usually when I went to the movies, after an hour, I would need to get up and kind of stand in the back or go hit the bathroom real quick and come back just to kind of stretch. And I was so transfixed, to use your word, exactly. I was so involved. And just from that opening prologue, like this guy is doing something. It's amazing that I actually just stayed in my seat the entire movie because it felt like it was 60 minutes long, even though it's well over three hours. And it was also one of the craziest experiences seeing that in a theater uh, with the rain of frogs uh, scene because 
when they first started, like the first one came down and we were just like, what is that? You know, nobody did anything. After like a few, all of a sudden it was a chorus throughout the entire theater of what the fuck what the and it was just and this was in like suburban minneapolis and i mean i did have to we had to go far uh to see that film but um it was just like an an audience communal experience but people didn't walk out because it was just so mesmerizing and crazy and you were invested and you know there were no walkouts on that one i think when i did see punch drunk club there might have been a couple walkouts in my theater but um there will be blood was another experience for me where i remember going to the theater to see it and uh it was opening night i was super excited i was dating someone at the time who had access to an advanced script and so months earlier, he'd sent me the script and I remember printing it off like, oh, it's the new Paul Thomas Anderson. Because at that point, it was a huge fan. I'd gone back to Boogie Nights and Sydney and all uh, the films and just watched them a lot. Um, but I like printed it off, but I didn't want to look at it because I wanted to have that experience. And when I went on opening night, it was a small art house theater. They oversold the auditorium. They didn't pay attention to the fire code because they actually stuck in like folding chairs. People were standing in the back and they just let it happen. And even with all of those people in the theater, you could have still heard a pin drop. It, I, it was an experience like I've never had before in a theater. And uh, it was incredible. And it was kind of 2007 was that year because we also had No Country for Old Men, which was another wrapped audience experience. But then it got a little more divisive, I think, even more than There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Yeah, I'll never, I I will never forget that first experience with There Will Be Blood. Just it it took me seconds to be taken under the spell of that movie. I don't know what it was. Just, you know, just something about the sound design and the cinematography just hits you immediately. You don't need any context for what's going on. It's just transporting it's like pure cinema that phrase that people like to throw around i missed seeing the master in the theater because i was like ill at the time and then it had left already so what was that i can't even imagine how um overwhelming and cool that would have been yeah i think i saw that maybe like at an on-campus screening when i was in grad school so not not quite the uh you know big 70 millimeter yeah yeah the the ideal doing conditions but still i mean that's that's a movie that took me three times at least just to kind of warm up into so yeah yeah i don't remember the big screen experience being particularly uh overwhelming in a positive way so much as just a what is happening to me (laughs) kind of a way that was my Um, first reaction yeah i had adam Neyman who wrote another book he's a friend of yours um on Paul Thomas Anderson, and we went over The Master. It was an episode we did on mind control movies last season. And, uh, you know, it was really good because by that point, I I think I had to watch it twice more because I'd seen it once and wasn't a huge fan. And I watched it twice more to be able to talk to Adam about it. And it was great to hear his perspective and read his perspective and then to read yours because it's a difficult film. It's very illuminating. This past uh, the the tens were kind of an interesting era there for Paul. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, in the book, I break things down into three sort of sections of, for him. And, uh, well, I guess it's not the tens it's, it's, um, well, I see there will be blood in the master as part of a three movie cycle, um, which does not span the tens. Now that I think about it, it's, it spans mostly the two thousands into the early 2010s. Okay. Uh, but yeah, his his movies about repression, about protagonists who are, um, you know, coiled, repressed, almost uh, nonverbal entities uh, who have to be trained in how to participate in society. I know. And I loved I mean, it's such an ambitious undertaking. And I love the way that you did this, because I think most people like I think in the intro you even talked about would have gone chronologically because the other books in this director's cut series had kind of done that. And uh, you wanted to take a look at themes, which is perfect, I think, for Paul Thomas Anderson, because there's so many recurring themes, signatures, stars. So what were some of the major discoveries that you made during this process of research and watching these movies endlessly, I'm sure? Well, the the big discoveries for me were um, the times that you can look at the screenplay 
And because all of his movies, except for Licorice Pizza, have uh, screenplay drafts that are circulated widely. Mm-hmm. Um, and the places where you can look at the screenplay draft and where it diverges from the finished film are always fascinating and so illuminating um, in terms of particularly his priorities as a writer, yeah. what it is that's getting taken away and what the effect is to having things pruned out. Um if you, you can go movie by movie and talk about what got left out from, you know, the worm subplot in Magnolia, um, which is. I know, nice. which which would have been, I think, I mean, the movie's long, but I would have watched a five hour version. But um, yeah, the worm subplot, it does feel like you want to know more about that one. Yeah, absolutely. And he tells you quite a lot more in the shooting script. Um, but it's not stuff that um, it, it feels like he's just yanking stuff out for the sake of saving the runtime and justifying it later, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, versus if you look at phantom thread, the stuff that he is pruning out, it feels very judicious what he's taking out. And, um, it really feels illum- illuminating in terms of, um, the effects that he's trying to create through implication more than through saying things outright. So, um, he takes out little references to Reynolds wartime service. For example, um, Reynolds Woodcock is a world war two veteran. Oh, wow. Uh, explicitly in the screenplay and just implicitly in the finished film um or he takes out stuff about alma's uh inferiority complex with her perfect older sister um stuff Ooh. that really yeah really informs the character um but doesn't need to necessarily be stated outright um it can just be left to implication that's really interesting because one thing i remember talking to you about when we were recording the pod thomas anderson episode on sydney hard eight was you know, early Paul Thomas Anderson, because yeah, we were comparing him to Mamet, because that's a very Mamety uh, film. That's him at his most Mamet. He loves Mamet, all the same actors, uh, the company, his rep company, kind of a lot of them were from Mamet. But he's somebody who, when I was saying my impression of early Paul or B character saying, this is the part of the movie, or this is the, you know, this is that scene, or they set up that and it can be a little bit dramatic. And I think maybe with age and, uh, you know, assurance in his skills is telling uh, a film's story through pictures and sound because the sound design became such a stronger part, I think starting almost with I mean, this wall-to-wall sound was there in Boogie Nights, and it seems to have gotten stronger over the years. So by the time you're getting to something like the gothic romance of Phantom Thread, or even with There Will Be Blood, these implications of exactly what you said, not spelling things outright, is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his first movies are so, so outwardly expressive. Yes. And, you know, there's there's very little that is taken away from either the Boogie Nights or Magnolia screenplay. It's all he, he filmed all wow. of it. And then, um, you know, there's there's a couple of little things here and there that go away. But um, then he gets more and more uh, sort of I mean, he 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 is notoriously not a fan of rewriting. Um, mm-hmm. Rewriting is for expletive. Some uh, quote of his, you can bleep it if you want to. Is rewriting is for pussies, is his line. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, has gotten more and more, I think, comfortable with um, yeah. going back and honing his scripts. And if you look at the circulated uh, draft for The Master, it's a completely different movie. Mm, I uh, need to. Wow. Yeah. You, you have to find that one in hard copy, I think. Okay. Um, it's it's the the uh, for your consideration draft that they sent around for for voters. Oh, um, I probably have that. I I used to keep all of those on like a Google Drive, so I probably have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a scene where Freddie goes into the uh, sewers under New York City to look for alligators. I think. Wow. Um, a lot of stuff that makes the the incest subplot more explicit. Yes, you were writing about that in in your book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of incest. I that was a discovery in in my research that incest is the secret skeleton key, the little Paul Thomas Anderson thing. It is. It's so weird because it's there, you know, in Magnolia, and it's there in other films, and also just the weird relationships um, that go throughout, like the siblings. I think it's interesting that Alma had a sister and had an inferiority complex because you have this very strange dynamic uh, relationship. I mean, it's basically Rebecca going on with the the right. siblings, um, uh, Woodcock as well. And I think um, 
I love what you did in this book. I'm going to read uh, the chapter titles um, out loud so people know exactly what we're talking about. He broke it down by theme and going through the films and and what uh, Anderson does. And so he has um, titles like On Places and Spaces, On Influence, On Domesticity, On Screenwriting, On Gender Performance, On Alienation Effects, because that's a big, big one for him, On Faith and Belief. That's a recurring issue. Uh, Book of Exodus is one of his faves. On Music Videos, On History. So yes, and it, it opens with On Paul Thomas Anderson's Career Today date and it's a nice overview of his history so the amount of research is staggering yes but we need to talk about pod thomas anderson and give a shout out to our buddy blake howard so tell me all about that how it came about did you approach blake was it vice versa and uh, i think it's such a cool idea so fill us in uh well i approached blake um, I just sort of, I feel like it started with the title. I just heard the, the words pod Thomas Anderson in my head and thought, well, that's really good. Yeah. Um, and it's, and I was, I, I, yeah. it's, it's very Blakey. Yes. Um, and I was looking for, for ways to promote the book. And so I went to Blake and I, I just said, do you think there is anything here? You know, I had guested on, um, a number of Blake's shows and, you know, we're, and anybody who's ever talked to Blake probably considers himself a good friend of Blake, but I do consider Blake a good friend. Oh yeah. And yep. so, um, he, uh, I, I wanted to, you know, explore the idea of collaborating with him. And so I reached out with this title and said, you know, maybe it's nine episodes and nine guests, you know, you just conventional movie podcast style. You just talk through the movie with somebody. And he came back to me with a much more, um, thought out uh structure which is where he said why don't we use excerpts from the book and plus you go and do interviews with people and we weave the interviews in with the excerpts and that is what we ultimately ended up doing so um i did something like 30 interviews um to cover the nine movies with three guests per episode yeah um and uh blake is editing it beautifully um, so yes, that is his forte. Yes. So for every episode, we are focusing on one movie and we have me, uh, reading off stuff from the beginning of the book where I'm covering the production history and the mm -hmm. reception of the movies. And then something from later in the book that, um, highlights one of the more, uh, themey chapters, like you were just reading off the titles of, yeah. um, and then we have people like you, uh, Jen, on the Heart Eight episode with Isaac Feldberg and Corey Everett. Um, In honor, yes. Yes. Uh, we just put out the Punch Drunk Love episode with mm -hmm. uh, the comedian Joe Para, the screenwriter Paul Brad Logan, and the podcaster Aaron Armstrong. It's a whole strong group of people. And we're about to put yeah. out the There Will Be Blood episode. I'm really excited to hear that with um, Roxana Haddadi, Emma Stefanski, and Sarah Welch Larson. That is. Ooh, nice a really, really solid episode. I bet. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant people that you're talking to. That's wonderful. Um, talk to me about the writing process of this book, because I'm always, as a writer, fascinated by how people divide it up. Because, you know, one of my ambitions is eventually to write a film book. Um, I need to almost clone myself because I, I can't even imagine how I'm going to find the time to do it, but I love it. I just talked to Kristen Lopez about her new book, um, but have you read the book? And she talked about how each week she only had eight months to read 52 books. She would take a new book and um, start it and then divide it up into chapters for each day. She had to get X far and then watching the film. So I would love to know how you broke this down. Were you originally, were these the chapter headings? Like, did you think of that first? How did you do this? Uh, they, it's, it's pretty close to the original chapter headings. I did do some shifting around between mm -hmm. original proposal and uh, actually writing the book. Um, I initially had a chapter in there on comedy that then mostly got folded into the chapter on alienation effects because so mm -hmm. much of his comedy is alienating in some way or another um his approach to comedy is not the straightforward um approach to saturday night movies or friday night movies is a term that he used as punch junk love he was trying to make his friday night movie and you see how bizarre and atonal that movie is compared to a typical adam sandler friday night movie yeah, um it's like a midnight movie almost 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I like to compare that movie to uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead, a very much a midnight yes. movie. <laughs> um, so what else? What? Oh, what the was, process the of writing it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I had to um, definitely break it up by word count because, you know, I, I had submitted a word count and I knew sort of where the ceiling and the floor were um, in terms of okay. what Columbia could handle. Uh, oh, that's good you know. to know because yes, I can be wordy as hell. And um, one thing I'd love about Brightwall is those essays can go on forever. Yes. Yeah, I, I I have trained myself to be able to go on forever. Um, <laughs> and but I, I had a ceiling from Columbia where they said, you know, if you go beyond this, um, it starts impacting things like production costs. Okay, uh, that's good so, to know. Yeah. And it was a very reasonable word limit for a first book, you know, a hundred thousand words. Mm-hmm. And so you just divide that up by the number of chapters and the number yeah. of days that you have to work on it. And you just, I, I would just talk about clocking in at the word factory and it is challenging. It's drudgery. Um, but thinking about it as, as just pure word production did help. Um, because, you know, I, I think at least for me, however bad, the writing feels while you're doing it, it always looks better when you go back and look at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just I know, seeing it you as, always think you do a horrible job and then you reread it and you're like, Oh, there might be something here. Yeah. 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 So just seeing it as, as grinding out the words and knowing that you can fix them later. Yes. Uh, that helps. Yeah. And doing a ton of outlining served me well on this one. Oh, good. Um, I'm finding it harder to outline my current project, but this one um, doing the sort of there's a term that I really like that I think Seth Myers uses where he says if you the more outlining you do the more that when you're actually writing you can write downhill. Okay. So I definitely did a ton of outlining on this so that by the time I was actually writing I was writing downhill very much so. Interesting. Uh so I need to ask now what is your current project? Uh I am writing a book on Bob Dylan as a cinematic figure. Ooh that's right you were telling me all about that and i'm so excited i think you sent me um behind the scenes info on on your pitch document on that one to Today, uh, yeah 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 back um, originally to kind of help guide me for when i eventually if like we said if if cloning happens and i get some or if i get right. some free time yes uh i'll take a cue from ethan and and also uh you know, I'm sure ask him 8 million questions. So Bob Dylan as a cinematic figure. I love that because I'm from Minnesota originally. So Bob right. Dylan is uh, just like Prince and Judy Garland. They're gods so, and the Coen brothers. So uh, talk to me about what you're you're doing with this one. Uh, well, it's it's Bob Dylan has been hanging around the margins of the movie industry going back to the 60s yeah. uh, and you know at times moving closer to the center of things but never all that close to the center of the mainstream um he has been the subject of documentaries so in in this case i'm going chapter by chapter um one chapter on him as the subject of documentaries one chapter on him as the auteur of a couple of movies um sort of little scene curios from the 60s and 70s um one chapter on him as an actor in movies yes. and each, each of these is conveniently uh, sort of paired. So he directed two movies. He was the subject of two documentaries. He's the subject of two Scorsese documentaries later on um, mm-hmm. he, his most notable acting roles. There's two of them, Pat Garrett and Billy, the kid and hearts of fire. That's what it's called, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, a movie that some people stick up for. I am not one of them currently. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll come around. Um, and then the, the two ones that were a little bit hard to, uh, pair were Mastin Anonymous and I'm not there. And so I've paired those two, um, as under the umbrella of sort of Dylan as, as cinema, as, you know, how can you prismatize the concept of Bob Dylan onto a movie screen? And those are two attempts at that. And now I already know that I'm going to get totally screwed up again because James Mangold has his Timothy Chalamet, Bob Dylan movie coming out. Yeah, it's your new licorice pizza. This keeps it's, happening to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'm going to have to wait and see what that does for me, and if I have to put things on hold again. Yeah, and hopefully there's going to be a scene with Bradley Cooper and and you know swinging around in the semi, uh, which which hopefully, I love yeah. so much. 
But um, this is great uh, to use a phrase from a mutual friend, Travis Woods, who I just talked to recently about the hotspot for Dennis Hopper series of episodes where he called Dennis Hopper an archaeologist of Americana. That's kind of uh, fitting for both Anderson and Bob Dylan. They they tell these stories they take from history and and they make up these little um, fictional versions or variations and, uh, you know, twist the truth. What is the truth? And that's uh, a big part of your your book. And I think also taking a look at America and greed and, um, you know, there's nothing like our first film uh, for that, especially There Will Be Blood. I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce it because, um, you know, you are my expert on these. Sure. Well, there will be blood. Um, a you you can kind of call every PTA movie a turning point for him, I think, in some way. Yes. Um, but this is a, a turning point for him in a couple of ways where it really was his sort of announcement of here I am as a major big boy auteur uh, mm-hmm. who can make you know great towering epics. Yes. Um, as opposed to being the sort of brash bad boy of the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, it was his first collaboration with Daniel Day-Lewis, which means it was his first, uh, sort of time working with anything like a, uh, storytelling collaborator. He had never written, he had never worked with a co-writer before. And Day-Lewis is not exactly a co-writer, but he is such a, uh, sort of full-throated creative force oh, gosh, in, yes. in crafting mm-hmm. yeah in crafting particularly this and his character in phantom thread mm-hmm. that i think you kind of have to see him as a co-writer a little bit so it is an adaptation of upton sinclair's book oil a very loose and interesting adaptation where it is incredibly faithful up to about the halfway point of the movie Mm-hmm. So the, the first half of the movie is a, an incredibly faithful adaptation of this book, often taking whole uh, passages of dialogue straight from the page. And then um, from the point of the Derrick fire where HW, the son of Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Daniel Plainview, HW is deafened, uh, which the equivalent does not happen to that character in uh, oil. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, the movies and the book, diverge completely and uh anderson goes into his own imagined conclusion which is uh much more full of sort of hysteria and uh grand old testament uh sturm and drang than uh upton sinclair's book is which is much more of a straightforward history of who uh edward l don't edward l donany day lewis's character is based on um i think his name is is uh edward l donany oil baron of the early 20th century who uh is very much like the character in the book and very much unlike the character on the screen it's always interesting to me when uh, filmmakers do that when they take a book and then go down a completely different path recently in the episode i did with Kristen lopez we covered to have and have not which kind of came from a little bit of a joke on a fishing trip on day one where howard hawks was telling hemingway you should make a you know write a script he's like i don't want to do that he said well i could make a good movie from your worst book and it was to have and have not and he took only like the first four chapters kind of thing and then completely diverged and made kind of a Casablanca ripoff is what that yeah. movie is. And so I always find that interesting when they take, um, you know, the elements and then go a different way. Reading about Anderson doing so much research and, you know, putting it all over his desk and then like taking little snippets of dialogue from, you know, speeches that were given back in the 20s. It's fascinating to to see um, in addition to, of course, Upton Sinclair's book. And then Treasure of Sierra Madre was a huge influence. And it's hard to watch the movie and not think of uh, John Houston and a combination of Bogart a little bit because Houston is a huge influence on both Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis was kind of drawing a little bit of inspiration, I think in the voice slightly uh, of John Houston, which I love. And, Definitely, you know, yeah. then it kind of goes into Citizen Kane-like territory. But the coolest thing about that is, you know, like if we said Sydney is kind of his mammoth movie and then Magnolia and Boogie Nights were more his Altman 
films the in a weird way you know this is kind of his kubrick or when he started to go down that path we have this massive opening prologue we have the end which is so brutal but it kind of plays on that beginning of 2001 i mean just i love this film it's haunting yeah yeah you're not the only person to make the kubrick comparison certainly um and it comes through in ways that are sort of overt like a lot of people see the ending in the um the the final set at the bowling alley as very sort of uh the shining-esque a little um, bit yeah that's it, a good good point yeah um and of course when he is uh bludgeoning a character to death it looks very much like what the ape is doing um into the opening of 2001 but it also i think moves in a very kubrickian way yeah. uh where kubrick his movies were often made up of sort of ellipses um rather than having everything tie together, you know, point A to point B to point C, there would be these leaps um, in mm-hmm. 2001. They are the most overt, you know, possible leaps, um, you know, going from uh, these evolutionary leaps of humankind to, um, you know, the leaps across the, across the vast expanses of space. Um, and there will be blood is constricted is constructed similarly with these huge ellipses in between acts um, or, um, there's there's a beautiful match cut um, towards the end of the movie that feels very 2001, where um, I think H.W. and Mary, um, as small children, uh, take a leap off of um, oh, yes. some, yeah, they leap off of some elevated structure, and then it match cuts to their marriage, um, which feels you know, very much analogous to the the match cut between the bone in 2001 and the mm-hmm. um, space station that it cuts to um, just. And, and there's, there's just a Kubrickian sort of chilliness to this movie uh, and sort of yes. eerie remove. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kubrick's chilliness is maybe a little bit overstated, but there, there was a sort of cool clinical observational quality to his movies that, um, that this has as well. Yeah, it is missing that kind of um, desire to draw you in. I mean, he's always been attracted to flawed characters, but also I love how sparse it is. His films seem to be starting with Punch Drunk Love. They're getting quieter. And, um, you know, like you could look at also Scorsese as being a big influence with the the sound. I mean, you have the over, overlapping dialogue in those movies, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, which seems very altman but you also have the way he uses music, which feels uh, very much like Scorsese influenced. And then by the time you get to this, uh, he's always been fascinated by music. And I love Johnny Greenwood's score. It's amazing. But he's letting the environment kind of take center stage. In a weird way, it does remind me of the other film shot in, in was it Marfa, Texas, around there, uh, No Country for Old Men in the way that the sound design uh, takes a front and center stage there. And I love his confidence as a filmmaker in this one. Yeah. Well, and so much of the sound design goes back to the score by Johnny Greenwood, which is, is, it was their first collaboration and it's such a strange sort of otherworldly score that really plays against your uh, expectations of a sort of period epic. And the sound design, I think, uh, is connected in large part to sort of making you feel the connection between these characters and the earth beneath them. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Yes, the grumbling and what are we doing to earth? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. There's um, there's a term that Anderson uses in the screenplay where he says, this is a sound sequence. And mm-hmm. you hear the the earth beneath their feet. You, you hear, I know, all this stuff that it's very much a movie about Daniel Plainview's uh, assault on the earth itself and the earth fighting back in certain ways um, by deafening his son. The earth takes his son's hearing from him as sort of a um, retribution for what it has, what he has done to it. Um, yeah. And listening to you just then, you know, man and nature can also be, and the way sound is used a little bit like Malik. Um, because on the Criterion disc for Thin Red Line it actually says like director Terrence Malick advises you to play this loud uh, which kind of came from the last waltz Scorsese but um, 
but yes uh, and that movie is about what are we doing as man to earth and you know that's a recurring theme with malik and the new world but yeah that was an interesting read and i love um your analysis of that in the book as how the earth is kind of paying back like what is going on um the acting is phenomenal of course daniel day lewis won the academy award for this film well deserved uh, Paul Dano is incredible, and I read he only had four days. So, talk to me about um, the interplay with those two and these performances. Well, it's it's really interesting. Um, Paul Dano is playing two characters, yes. uh, which are uh, Eli Sunday and his brother. I think it is Paul Sunday. Yes. Um, uh, and these characters are huge. Um, subjects of of reinterpretation by anderson both characters are in the book okay but in the in the book paul does not uh you know hit the road he sticks around and becomes a mentor to hw oh wow and uh well the, the hw character is called bunny in the book um <laughs> he hangs around and, and becomes the agent of bunny's socialist awakening whereas eli is this figure who exists much more in the background uh, Anderson was more interested in sort of the subject of religion than the subject of socialism. Very disinterested in any socialist implications of this story. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me. Um, and also that demarcates it as a, as a schism point in the book is after the Derek fire, the characters in the book all come together and say, wait a minute, these are insanely unsafe working conditions. We need to unionize. Anderson yeah. is not interested in that happening. No. Um, it's it's just so interesting to me to see just the physical pairing of Dano and Day Lewis because uh, Dano, I mean, he he had been around for a little while, but not that that long. He's still very no. young. I think this was right after, or maybe the same year as like Little Miss Sunshine. I mean, my yeah, goodness. it was about a year later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's so baby faced, and to have him yes. going up against this, this grizzled icon of the screen, it's just a great sight gag, if nothing else. And this is one of uh, what Anderson has described as sort of his spy versus spy or Tom and Jerry movies. Um, he's, he always says the more that you can get things back to a spy versus spy or Tom and Jerry place, uh, the more satisfying that is to him. Interesting. Yeah. I love that. Um, and so this is, it's just two knuckleheads going up against each other in the desert and trying to get the upper hand. And finally one of them does and just sort of leaves, which I love. Mm -hmm. um, the minute that Eli ostensibly has the upper hand, he just gets out of town so that he can't lose the next match to Daniel uh, until he eventually does lose everything to Daniel in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. Um ambition and commerce and religion um, are kind of butting heads. Uh, there's fathers and sons. I mean, Anderson is one of these two Andersons who are obsessed with bad dads. You know, Wes Anderson is another one. And here we have yep. Paul Thomas Anderson. And uh, so there are some, some of his recurring themes that kind of, uh, you know, are at the heart of this film, but there's so much going on. And I think, you know, every time you watch this movie, you discover something new, I think, no matter how many times you watch it, because it is so rich. And you start looking at the background characters or, um, you know, Kiaren uh, Hines character, I was watching more closely this time, or that whole subplot with the brother, which uh, is the imposter. And it's, it's very fascinating. So I was also wondering when you were writing this book, uh, how many times did you watch these movies? Did you uh, go back to certain scenes? Were you hitting up YouTube quite a bit? Or, you know, did you letterbox it? I was hitting up my uh, Apple TV uh, iTunes copies constantly. <laughs> uh, that was my sort of dog-eared, always, you know, yeah. the, the play, play mark is always somewhere in the middle of those movies. Um, and what I found is that when I watched it reading alongside the screenplay, if I, if I did one like day long watch of each movie, that was where I scraped most of the, the good stuff from was oh, just interesting. taking one day to just watch the movie with the screenplay beside me, reading and watching it as closely as I could. 
And that was just harvesting all of the really, what ended up being the really good stuff. Um, Very cool. In addition to lots and lots of research, of course. But um, in terms of, I didn't, I didn't rewatch them as endlessly as, as I might've imagined that I would have, because after a certain point, they've sort of revealed what they're going to reveal to you as yes. a writer. That's true. And I'm one of those people who um, I need to work my thoughts out. I don't like to write after I see a movie. Like I love talking about it with my friends, but I don't like to write a piece about it right away because I think you need to sit with it and let it live in your mind. And then sometimes when I write a, a piece, I realize I like the movie better or worse than I imagined I did. And so um, did that happen here? Were there any movies that you were maybe not as big of a fan but you became a bigger one or vice versa um i think you know heart eight slash sydney really rose in my esteem um it's one that is very easy to sort of cast aside uh, in comparison to first and yeah yeah and it's it's maybe the only one that's like four stars instead of five for me okay um but I, through just studying it and kind of trying to give it the same analytical amount of heft that I did everything else, mm-hmm. um, it really grew in my esteem. Um, and then I think the other one would have to be Inherent Vice, which benefits from repeat watching more than probably any of his movies. The most confusing film ever because it's from a book and it's very, uh, that's very confusing. Uh, Thomas Pinchon. Uh, I think it's cool that this came after. Uh, inherent vice came after there will be blood in the master and he was probably like okay so he'd never let his work be adapted before like this guy can handle it yes yes yeah i love to just imagine the conversations between the two of them which we will none of us will ever learn anything about i know yeah unfortunately (laughs) for sure i I hope i live long enough to read the definitive paul thomas anderson biography someday because maybe there'll be something in there yeah somebody's gonna have to do some real (laughs) digging to figure it out Absolutely. None of this off the record stuff. We want the good stuff. Yes. Um, And I think There Will Be Blood pairs very well with Phantom Thread because of his collaboration with Daniel Day-Lewis. And also it just sort of feels a little bit, well, it's much more gothic, but it feels like him working in a more purely cinematic, a, a little bit of a quieter vein. So what was your first experience with Phantom Thread like? Uh, it is not a movie that opened itself up for me immediately. Me um, neither. It's one that, yep. Yeah, it took a couple of viewings uh, for it to sort of reveal itself. It feels it's it's playing in that sort of merchant ivory space that mm-hmm. um, sort of hides some of it, it, it. It's hiding what it's doing in plain sight. Um, which is that it is actually sort of a messed up rom-com, um, which it takes you a while to really appreciate how sort of dry and odd and just sort of strange the movie is. Because um, mm-hmm. it, it's a movie that sort of invites you to look at it through a very familiar, comfortable, prestige lens. Uh, and then by the end has revealed itself to be a really long sort of gross out shaggy dog story. <laughs> it really does. I remember I took my dad to see it like he wanted to go to the movies and so we that was what was playing and I'm like, "Ooh." And then I thought, I don't know if he's going to dig it, but he's like, "Yeah, I'll go. It's Daniel Day-Lewis." And uh, I was not allowed to pick the movie for a while after that one. He hated <laughs> it, but he somehow forgot about it. And so I received the most hilarious text message when it finally came out and it was rented on um you know, VOD, he rented it with my stepmom. And I got, for whatever reason, they turned on the narration, the audio description service. Uh And so I received this frantic text, like, there's a narrator explaining everything that they're doing. This isn't part of the movie, right? Because I remember it's kind (laughs) of weird. And I'm like, no, it's not. So then I had to figure out how to explain that. He saw the film, yes, and no, that's not part of it. But um, yeah, it did take some time. it's one I couldn't stop thinking about. And I realized a couple days after I saw it, I started to get the Hitchcockian implications of not only Rebecca, but also Hitch's life. Uh, I love that she's named Alma and Alma was 
his most um, important collaborator, his wife, who worked on scripts and films with him, like when he was up and coming. And um, also they kind of butted heads, but they loved each other. And so I, I loved that aspect of it. And I think also the more that I watch it, uh, the more that I see it's really a ghost story. Because in the opening sequence, when I was watching it, I love that it kind of threads the needle, the camera work up and down the stairs. It's very hypnotic. Uh, in one of the early scenes, you see Leslie Manville. Why am I blanking on her name? <laughs> Leslie Manville walk down the hall and there's a door that's just open that she has to shut. Like, how did the door get open? And so the house they live in is haunted. And I, I think that's really fabulous too for him to play in an avenue that maybe he was... Uh, looking at with there will be blood certainly in the master there's there's a haunted quality yeah one of my uh my sort of room 237 theories on this movie that's that's one thing that i i developed real room 237 theories on all of these movies Ooh. but one that uh, i hold dear to my heart is the idea that reynolds is being literally sort of guided by his mother's spirit at times interesting um because he wears a lock of her hair, right? Sewn into yes. the suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a uh, line in the screenplay where he is sort of about to not go into the restaurant and meet Alma for the first time, but then something compels him to cross the street. And it's as though he is not under his own sort of power. Interesting. And then in the finished movie, you know, you see they have their sort of meet cute. And then she walks away and he has this little moment where he stops and he sort of furrows his brow and he looks down at the table as though he is not fully in control of what just happened to him. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's my little theory is that his mother's spirit is at times compelling him towards Alma, quite literally. Yes. And one of his first uh, dialogue exchanges with uh, Leslie Manville as his sister is talking about you know, being able to smell his mom or mom's spirit being there with him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's that haunted quality of Rebecca that it, that goes through, but uh, which is kind of weird. It deals with maybe a little bit of that incestuous theme that you're seeing as sort of the the skeleton key for PTA, because there there is kind of unnatural, strange uh, relationships. And I love their meet cute. There's something about her role to nourish him. Their food plays a big role, which is also very Hitchcockian because Hitchcock loved using food, especially in seduction scenes. And like, they're always eating notorious. They're talking about food when they're making out in that two minute uh, long kiss that they do and kind of goes throughout his entire filmography. And so there's something about being a hungry boy and a thirsty boy and her nourishing him uh, well and then poorly, uh, but in order to help him calm down from his mania because he is dealing with stuff, uh, there's a mental um, issue that we think uh, he has or is like a little bit of a focus problem. And so she's using like poison to to do that, which is really messed up. I remember the first time I saw it and I saw her with the mushrooms, I kept thinking she was going to control the sister at first. I'm like, is she going to go after her and be like isolating or what is she doing? But yeah. Yeah. It's, I unfortunately had the ending spoiled for me a little bit. And so I went in knowing kind of oh, where it was all you? headed. Yeah. And I, I wish I had, I had had that uh, pure experience for me of, of realizing what, oh my God, what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is one that was not shot by Robert Elswit, who is one of his main and most important collaborators, the cinematographer, um, Elswit has talked about this movie like, well, there's a lot of smoke or, you know, it's it's not in focus at times. And so he, he's had a lot of fun because it is rumored that it was Paul. But Paul says it was more of a collaboration. There was uh, one of his lighting guys. He, he gives a lot of credit to as being a cameraman. I love, uh, like I said, the cinematography is very fluid, this constantly moving camera, which feels very Altman, something he's played with, especially early on in Magnolia. You're kind of always at sea. You're like following these people through and it feels like you're you're at sea or on waves. And you also see that in the master, some of the like Lawrence of Arabia shots in the desert on the motorcycle. Um, and this one feels like, like it is sort of, 
hypnotizing you, going back and forth, like uh, embroidery. We see Alma doing some embroidery. But there's also that great scene where they're in the car driving uh, very quickly down streets, which feels a little bit like you're in Clockwork Orange all of a sudden to bring Kubrick back. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of the camera? Yeah. I mean, I I buy the idea that um, the camera crew has essentially become a autonomous cinematographer unit. Um, Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. It's something that um, he apparently has sort of honed in doing his side music video work um, a lot, particularly with the band Haim, yes. um, who would go on to star for uh, him in Licorice Pizza. Um, they Those videos, I think, enabled the camera crew to just get in such sync that um, they don't need a traditional cinematographer. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to fathom how that would work, but apparently it works for them. And, you know, the results speak for themselves. They really do. I, I love his videos for Haim. I think they're beautiful. They're infectious. They feel very summery, very L.A., very San Fernando Valley or where he grew up, essentially. But um, I play Anima like all the time on Netflix. I love that so much. Him working with Radiohead, Tom York um being in it and it feeling a little chaplain-esque uh so yeah that's that's one of my favorites yeah yeah that one it doesn't that one doesn't click for me as much as something like um junoon does that's that's the music video project of his that i really gravitate to i need Uh, to see that that. no i really do yeah it's it's him it's him working with basically like consumer grade, uh, like handheld camcorders. Mm-hmm. And so what you're seeing, and he's just sort of running around and capturing what interests him. And so you're seeing the director's mind working in real time, which how often do you get to see just literally like a director's first, you know, first person, uh, point of view, I guess, uh, shot where he's finding his frame and then he finds a more interesting way to frame it. And then now he's interested by the birds for somebody who is so often so sort of cool and composed to get to see their mind working in real time. Like that is just so exciting. Yeah, that sounds great for sure. So you said that you had some room two, three, seven theories about these movies. Um, and, and I did have some eye-opening experiences reading, uh, your, these chapters of your book. Uh, some of your interpretations were very fascinating. Had you written any essays on PTA for Brightwall before this? Like, had this been a recurring obsession? Yeah, I wrote about, um, Punch Trunk Love for the uh, second time around issue of Brightwall Darkroom, which was all essays on movies that you had to come back to a second time yeah. to really appreciate. And so I wrote about everything that I told you about at the beginning of this conversation. Um, and then I wrote an essay about uh, Hard Eight Sydney mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of working on the book, because I was like, I've got to sort of get this movie into my system in a concentrated way and so writing an essay about it got me up to speed so that i could roll it into writing the book um and then i wrote about uh his unproduced screenplay called knuckle sandwich which he wrote mm. when he was in his early 20s and is floating around on online for you to read it uh it takes place i think in the 60s in la it's like a gangster hyper violent uh okay gotcha it's, it's almost like a john wick kind of thing um, it's really interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. Yes, for sure. So when he makes more movies, are you going to write an addendum? Like, will this get reprinted or what do you think you're going to do? Uh, well, fortunately, with the way that I set the book up, I don't need to write another book or a uh, revised edition until there are three more movies. So nice. Yes. I broke everything into into chunks of three. Yeah. Um, so. So you're saving yourself a little bit before you need to be cloned is what we're saying. Yes, exactly. Yes. So in addition to the Bob Dylan book, which sounds excellent, is there anything else on the horizon for you that we should look for? Uh, The Bob Dylan thing is really taking all of my focus right now. So um, I don't, I don't have anything else to point your way to right now, um, except pod Thomas Anderson. Yes. Uh, We're still cranking out new episodes and it sounds, sounds great. For sure. Blake his credit for 
Yeah, you can find those on the One Heat Minute uh, Productions uh, podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts and highly recommend it. I love chatting with you about part eight. Well, Ethan, I want to thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. And thank you for sending me your book. It's amazing. You're a phenomenal writer. I've loved reading your essays uh, at Brightwall. And it was really cool to see this focused um, analysis of Paul Thomas Anderson, because you actually you made a really good point. There have been so many books on Anderson, but I think this is a really fresh, interesting approach. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. You'll have to come back when you uh, have another idea for an episode, maybe for Bob Dylan. Sounds good. Let's do it. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.